All right, it looks like we're live. So, uh, David, you're a Catholic, which means you believe that the Pope and the Church are infallible? They can't make mistakes? Is, is that correct? Well, they can make mistakes, but not in the ways that matter. You need to understand what infallibility is. It's just a guarantee that the essential saving truths are accessible to everyone. The geniuses with six PhDs, all the way down to the moron who can't even write his own name. Oh, so it's only in respect to the... Uh Pertinent truths to salvation, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If I remember it, the church doesn't take the 6,000-year young earth creationist stance, do they? Well, that's what I've just come to discover, yeah. Indirectly, it does dogmatically teach, indirectly, not directly, but indirectly, it does dogmatically oblige us to believe in a young earth, yes. Well, as far as I know, some people in the church would disagree on that. Like, I think maybe the Pope even. Most people would, yeah, all the recent popes and 99.9% uh, .9 of everyone, yeah. But that's just not something significant to salvation, so it's not really, it's something that we can be fallible about? No, I think it's significant. I think it's just one of these issues that's clouded today. And, you know, I, I could be wrong, but from what I've understood, it's indirectly defined, uh, meaning that the logical implications of the existing dogmas, for example, there's a dogma of the Council of Vienna that says the soul is the form of the body. So that's an example of a dogma that is infallible, which cannot be contradicted, and which has logical implications for the theory of evolution, even a theistic evolution. So that's what I've discovered, that and other interesting theological truths or doctrines, which imply that evolution is untenable for the Catholic, and philosophically untenable for everyone else, too. Interesting. And so uh, what is your position on the science? Because the science seems to strongly suggest that that's false. Yeah, that's why it took me 10 years to, uh, quote-unquote, come out of the closet as a young earth creationist. And uh, I don't know if you listened to that video I sent you about why I am no longer a young earth creationist, but the punchline to that joke is because it's redundant to call myself a young earth creationist Catholic, because all Catholics have to abandon theistic evolution and every other form of progressive creationism and all these sorts of things. We are obliged to believe that the earth is under 10,000 years old or something like that. So if the science did show that that was false, would you change your position? No. I see a hierarchy in the sciences. So I see God as science itself. God is perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect truth. So he gives us the book of nature, which is sort of a divine revelation of himself. But he also gives us a revelation in terms of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Ten Commandments, all these sorts of things, and theology, which looks at and unpacks all this sort of divine revelation. And it also looks at philosophy, which is the next lower science in this hierarchy of sciences. So you've got God, revelation, theology, philosophy, and then underneath that is physics. And by the word physics, I just mean all of natural science. So I don't, I don't lean on, I don't draw on physics or the natural sciences as the sort of source of any of these positions that I take. For example, when I go to communion, the Eucharist, if you were to take the what looks like bread and wine and analyze it, everything would come back saying that it's bread and wine, right? But I don't believe that it's bread and wine after the consecration, after a valid consecration. Now, is it possible that some of the consecrations that I think are valid are not valid and it just remains bread and wine? Yeah, sure. Uh, hopefully not too often, but uh, in our day and age, it certainly is a possibility more and more with all the uh, disbelievers in the pulpit and stuff like that. So you do, do you believe that it literally does change and we just aren't hesitant at the right time? 
to figure that out? Or do you think it's just our tests can't detect it because it's like of a spiritual kind of body? It's not that it's spiritual. It's that the accidents remain, but the substance changes. So this is straight back to Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, where they make this distinction between substance or essence and accidents. Are you familiar with those distinctions? The essence existence distinction. Yeah. All composite things are actually not only reducible to a material composition, but they're actually a composition of essence and existence. This is a sort of breakthrough that I had recently when I was looking into the um, modal proof of God's existence by blessed John Duns Scotus. It has to do with essentially ordered series of causes so that, like, for example, right now I'm lifting the glass and it's my will that, that is behind the motion of the glass and there's a hierarchy there, and my will is necessarily more perfect than the physical stuff in my arm, and certainly more perfect than the glass itself, which is inanimate. So there's a sort of hierarchy, but it's in real time, meaning that it's a vertical analysis of causation, which of course intermeshes with the horizontal accidental series of causes too. But it's really interesting. I, I haven't mastered it, but I'm hoping to at some point. Yeah, my position on those arguments is that most of them are just uh, semantic properties that don't actually exist. Like I can just make them a new property called the widget property, and there is a maximum widget, and so there must be a widget master or something like that. Uh, and so essentially, I can just do the same thing and say that there is a. I can grant that there is some necessary thing, but that necessary thing can just be a different necessary thing that's not a god, like pantheism. And I can explain everything that uh, the god supposedly does. Yeah, I think you're attacking more of uh, Anselm's ontological argument. This. This is a completely different approach. I think one of the reasons why Scotus got excited about this path is because it sidesteps a lot of the hairy issues with Anselm. But um, can we talk a little bit about the science of evolution, please? Because I'm so ignorant. Uh, just tell me what I should know. Like the sort of like, if you were to give a five minute elevator pitch to a young earth creationist using hard science, uh, what would you pitch? So do you know what RNA is? Yeah, roughly. RNA can be assembled from purely non-organic things. We can see it on clay. We can watch it happen in a lab. RNA can assemble itself on clay with no direct interaction of a person. We just watch it happen. We can see RNA self-replicate. and We can see RNA produce DNA. And so we can watch the stages go from one to another to lead up to what will create life. So yes, the, the consensus is, is that life is a purely natural process, that abiogenesis happens. But is that what the science textbooks teach, that that's life? Well, the definition of life in science is uh, far more ambiguous, but the consensus in science is that we definitely went from non-living to living. It's just where do we draw the line? Kind of like the species problem. Like, is Archaeopteryx a bird or is it a dinosaur? We don't really know. We don't really have concrete definitions on where to place things one or the other because it's just a spectrum. So the, th the life applies the same thing. The, the consensus in biology is that, yes, Life came from non-life, but we don't know where exactly we should call the first life. Uh, what did they call that? Sorites? You put one grain of sand on the table, and then you put a second one. And oh, sorites, yes. Problem of the heap. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem, because when you try and classify an emergent uh, phenomenon uh, definitively, based on the conglomerate parts, it's essentially impossible. It's like, when does a drop of water become a puddle? It's like... There's not really a metaphysical distinction there. It's kind of just arbitrary. So even if we grant that God created life, God would have to come up with some definition and say life begins at point X. And he's like, I have to give a way to distinguish point X from 
the thing previous to point X, the thing after point X. So God also has to answer the problem of the heap. We had one grain of sand. Is it a heap now? And God's going to have to come up with an answer to that. Otherwise, his definition is just arbitrary. There's something a little bit off topic. If you don't mind, I'd like to run it past you. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. I have an interesting thought experiment where I can prove that indeterminacy is hard determined. The reason that I, I think about this is because a lot of atheists want to point to the ambiguities of the quantum world as some sort of possible hiding place for free will. But if we examine the actual output of the data that's collected around the world in the quantum physics labs, and we see how it's conforming perfectly with these statistical outcomes based on these statistical expectations. And so this, if we work backwards in time, if we look at that perfect graph, and then we back up and we remove the data going backwards through time, at each step in that backwards analysis, we can know with certainty which part of the curve has a little notch in it because that data point, we've removed that by stepping backwards in, in time. And so now our curve is a perfect curve minus that one notch. And then we go back one more data point and we see the second notch over here that needed to be filled in by that second to last experiment and so on and so forth. So at every stage in this so-called statistical science, we see that there's a perfect 100% determined outcome. Right, That's well, that was Einstein's interpretation of the particle duality, but there was a test done called the delayed quantum eraser that showed that that wasn't actually the case. It is actually more random than that. But my position is, I agree, free will doesn't exist. Free will is logically impossible. There can't be free will. Most atheists usually say there can't be free will, but theists usually say there can be free will. But even if we grant that quantum randomness is really a thing, that doesn't get you free will. That's just randomness. Like, if you, if you do an action, either you do the action for a reason, in which case it's determined by the reason, or you do it for no reason, in which case it's random. Now, if it's random, it's not a free action, so you don't have free will. And if it's determined, it's not a free action, so you don't have free will. But there is no randomness. Everything has a reason, including God's existence. God's existence has a perfectly reasonable explanation. Just I don't happen to know what it it is other than he's necessary and his essence is existence. So it's the same thing with free will. I think you'll admit that you feel like you're free. You feel like when you're presented with different options, you can choose, right? So we apprehend our free will in that way. And uh, I was a hard determinist for a long time. So I know how to rationalize the feelings away. But now that I'm Catholic, I take it as a direct apprehension and intuition that we are actually free. So there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why we make the choices we do. And uh, many of the choices we think we're making freely are not made freely. Right. There are tests that we can show that the, looking at your brain, we can know a decision you're going to make seven seconds before you make it. Yeah. Stuff like that. So I, I sometimes fantasize that every human has one free choice in their whole life. God only knows which one it was, but that determines your, uh, if you're going to go to heaven or hell. Well, suppose you there was this one decision. So you have this decision and you're going to have to make a choice between like X and Y or whatever. X and not X. Yeah, X or not X. And you're going to pick, and you have to pick either for reasons. You have to like look at X and say, X has these beneficial reasons and these negatives, and Y has these X beneficial reasons and these negatives. And you're going to have to pick for the reasons, in which case it's determined by the reasons, because the reasons are going to say this one's better than the other one, and you're going to pick the better one. Or you have to pick for no reasons. You have to just discount all the reasons. But if you do that, your choice is just going to be completely random. So how do you escape that dichotomy to get free will? 
yeah, it, it, there's a reason. There's a reason. And the reason is your free will. And your free will is a mystery which I can't uh, comprehend, but I have apprehended it. So that's my answer. It's not a very satisfying answer. It's satisfying to me because that mystery is like a gateway to eternal life, right? Whereas for you, maybe it's just frustration and then you, you know, life's short and then you die, that kind of thing. But for me, that's a door to God and it's a door to eternal happiness and fulfillment. So I'm very happy with that question mark. Not to say that I want scientists to stop asking questions. I don't. But the question marks are the most exciting part for me. Well, I think about it as like, if it's a question mark, how can you use the question mark as a justification for something? It's like, that's a UFO. It's unidentified. Therefore, it's aliens. Like, you can't just say it's unidentified and then say it's aliens. You've identified it. Yeah, I mean, if I were an alien, like if I came from Mars and I had green skin, I would look down at myself and I would ask, am I self-existent or is someone else the source of my existence? It's the same problem we all have to face at the end of the day because God is at the heart of everything. When I was an atheist, I didn't believe in free will. Now that I'm a theist, I believe in free will. And there's a reason. The reason is because I have God, who is a mystery which will never be comprehended in all eternity. Even when I'm in heaven for eternity, I'll never fully understand God. But because I've accepted that I'm not God, that God is God, I have now a comfort level with mystery. Whereas before I would just encounter a mystery and I would sort of deduce it away would you agree that if it's a mystery you can't use the mystery as a justification for some conclusion right because it's a mystery no i the mystery of my free will is the justification i mean it's like just picture yourself in front of the judge and the judge says why did you steal the loaf of bread and you in your defense you say because my family's starving and you know, the shopkeeper tripled the price, you know, and then the judge lets you go. <laughs> but the, the thing is that your free will is a mystery, but it's still a defense that keeps you out of jail, like, because the judge takes that into consideration. You're, the judge doesn't know what free will is either, but he knows that, oh, okay, so you freely chose to steal the loaf of bread for reason X, Y, and Z, and uh, you don't have to go to jail. So it's, it's like that. Uh, so my, my question is, is like, if you see something, you don't know it. Like if I find an object, it's identified. So if I've identified it, so it can't be unidentified. That's a contradiction that I've just said. It's unidentified, therefore it's an alien. So that seems to be what you're doing. You're saying there's this unidentified thing that's free will, therefore I'm going to identify it as something that indicates a God. No, no, no. The God comes first. And then, uh, as I told you, when I was an atheist, I did not accept free will because it's irrational. It's irrational to accept free will without God. But once you have God, then it becomes... A mystery. God is a mystery and free will is a mystery. Life is a mystery. You think that life is a bunch of random molecules bumping into each other and dancing around and whatever. I think that's silly, right? But you think that that's scientific and logical and rational, so that's what you believe. But I believe in God, so I think life is a mystery. It's not like I see molecules bumping into each other and dancing around and then I say, oh, there must be a God. No. First, I accept that I'm not God, that God is God, that I'm not the source of my own existence, and that therefore there is another who is self-existent from which I draw life. Okay. So if we agree that it's unidentified, like the free will is an unidentified thing, then it wouldn't be reasonable to use that unidentified thing to justify God. You can't use free will to justify God, correct? But if there is free will, then there's more to our world than just the natural. There has to be a supernatural realm Otherwise, free will is impossible. That's why you don't believe in free will, because it's irrational to believe in free will if you don't acknowledge God and the supernatural. So I can use free will to support belief in the supernatural. 
Well, I would, I would disagree with that. I would say that anything the supernatural can do, unknown natural things can also do. So if free will could be defined, then the natural could potentially do it. The reason I don't believe in free will is because it's logically impossible. Like a square circle is logically impossible. So just like the natural world, you can't get a square circle. The supernatural world, you also can't get a square circle. So the reason I don't believe in free will is because it can happen in neither. Yeah, I disagree with you on that, obviously. There's a sort of accounting that you're trying to impose on reality, which I would say is naive. You just can't, you're trying to do a strict accounting, but you don't even have all the numbers. So it's a little bit uh, ambitious, your project. I mean, it all comes back to this bare fact of my own existence, like we discussed last time. If I am, exclamation point, you know, I am, then I have nothing to worry about. But if my existence comes from another, then I need to acknowledge that. And uh, this was the turning point for me. I think we might be going in circles here. Do you want to talk a little bit about the science of evolution again? Uh, sure. Which part? Do you want to go more into abiogenesis or more in the... Nah, the abiogenesis thing didn't sound too interesting. Let's talk about the sort of amoebas to man kind of journey. Because it's survival of the fittest. Are we the fittest right now? Well, the fitness has to do with what can survive in the environment. So we're the sort of fittest. The more fit would be bacteria. Bacteria is the most fit of all species right now. <laughs> so what does that say about the tree of life where it, like things are supposed to be getting better as we go out on the branches? Well, they're getting more complex. So it's like the ability to disperse entropy is higher in me than it is in bacteria because I can use more energy faster than bacteria can. You can bring on global warming faster. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> so um, what do you say? Like I used to work for environmental companies like uh, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and Pollution Probe. And in all seriousness, they were like Marxist, Leninist, feminists, and they wanted to kill humanity so that the trees could have fresher air and stuff like that. Uh, and that would work if you want to save the planet. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Can you just talk to me about sort of the psychology of Darwinism, evolution, and this sort of thing? And is there a connection like with the ecological mindset, anti-human mindset? Well, no, Darwinism doesn't have any rationale behind it. It's just whatever survives the best in the environment. It's not pre-programmed for anything. It doesn't have any thought patterns at all. It's just this pattern uh, disperses more entropy for longer than this pattern. Therefore, this pattern is going to maintain itself for longer because it has more energy. But you can't give what you don't have. So when you're generating offspring, it can be the same or different accidentally, but it can't be essentially different. That's the basic understanding philosophically about why evolution is impossible. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, we can prove it false by showing that mutations can cause new things that fundamentally change the species, give you new stuff. Any big exciting ones? I'm not, I'm not talking about tiny uh, creatures, any the size of a rat kind of thing where a rat turned into a bird or something like that? No, that takes quite a bit longer. We only have things like uh, yeast and single-celled organisms, uh, E. coli, those kinds of things. That's boring. But if nothing can give something that's not, well, that would prove that wrong because that something definitely can. Well, we don't know what the breakdown is on kinds of creatures, right? Like it all has to do with that potential, that uh, act and potency concept. So do you think that I have the potential to grow wings? Yep. <laughs> your, your lineage has the potential to grow wings, yes. Dinosaurs evolved, like T-Rex evolved wings and flew. So dinosaurs evolved the ability to do birds and started to flew. So yes, you can do it too, given millions of years. <laughs> Something to live for. <laughs> 
What about ancient civilizations and stuff like that? Do you have any idea about that? Yeah, there's tons, like in India, China. How old are they? Tens of thousands of years. When was the first writing that we know about? I'd have to Google it, but I think it was 12,000 years ago in India. Okay. That's not too far back. Uh, so what kind of uh, evidence do we have? Is it archaeological for these ancient civilizations? Yep. Like we've, we can find the cities, we can find the pottery, we can find the, the grave sites, we can find the, the walls that have been like scratched on and paintings and stuff. Okay. And it's dated how? I assume with different kinds of radiometric dating. Okay. I've heard a bunch of stuff that that's not reliable and it's all calibrated to fit evolution's tall tales and stuff like that. It makes absolutely no sense. Those criticisms, like there, there's there's a bunch of different ones, and they're all different. They're they're they have different qualities, so they're different ratings for certain years. They're only accurate within a certain range of years because of how the how the element decays. And so, if you use the wrong one, and yeah, it's completely ridiculous. But that's what the creationists are doing. They're using one that's the wrong set of years to come up with a completely different conclusion. Okay. What are some of the other big topics? You have genetics. Archaeology. There's phylogeny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one I think is silly. But that's the one Aaron's into, right? Classification of life? Yep. The trees of life and how they relate. You find that compelling? Yep. We can use genetics and look at the genetic tree and the order of the genes and where they line up to figure out exactly how the species evolved. And make predictions? Yep. Make predictions. One of the ones that was most interesting, we found that hippos are more related to whales than they are to rhinos or elephants the best predictions are the ones where we can say if evolution is true and like a fish evolved into a lizard then exactly at this layer we will find a fossil of a species that's half fish and half lizard and will only be in this layer and only in this area within like a one kilometer area and they make those kinds of predictions all the time and they're always right and what do the creationists say no <laughs> You can't do that. The flood did it. No. That's what I want to go with. But what about, uh, um, cos what do you call it? Like, uh, astronomy? Cosmology? Yeah. The stars and all that. Yeah. The Big Bang Theory, um, redshift of the light, the cosmic microwave background. That all supports, uh, ancient uh, universe. Yeah. The 13, that's where we got the 13 point whatever billion years is by looking at the rate of expansion of the universe and calculating back how long it was when the Big Bang occurred. That's pretty firmly established? Yeah, that's extremely firmly established. That's one of the strongest cases we have in the sciences is cosmology and biology and evolution. Those are the two like strongest sciences in any science at all. Like I said, I don't know much about the science. I just came to uh, creationism through theology, but I'll be interested to watch and hear what people say on both sides of the issue. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear your conversation with Arun Ra. I'll definitely watch <laughs> yeah. that. He said he made a special point of telling me, David, I want to talk to you before you talk to Kent Hovind. Maybe he wants to get me before I'm contaminated. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Kent Hovind, the man, the character? What do you think of him? I think he is misunderstood. I think he is he honest in what he believes. Most people think he's really dishonest, but I don't think that's true. I think you just have to talk to him in his language to get to a meaningful point. And if you can't do that, then you're essentially just talking past and talking to him in Chinese or something. So in order to really get through to Kent Hovind, you have to talk to him in his language and in a way that he can understand what it is you're trying to say without talk, using too much terminology, because if you use the terminology, he's going to get lost and go into his rhetoric points. And so I think he's really misunderstood and characterized as lying and dishonest in his debates when he's really not. He's just 
you're not communicating to them in a way that's meaningful to them. So the more I talk to people, the better I can understand their position and communicate with them. Mm. Who are some of your favorite guests that you've had recently and who are you looking forward to interviewing next? Um, I really enjoyed my Fuzz Rana talk. He's the, he's the old earth creationist. We talked about the information in the cell and abiogenesis. He was really fun to talk to. I really enjoyed my conversations with uh, Luke Barnes, the cosmologist, and uh, Robin Collins, the philosopher and physicist. I really enjoyed my conversation with uh, Bob Price on did Jesus exist? I actually took the position Jesus does exist, and he took the position Jesus doesn't exist. That was an interesting one. I really enjoyed my conversation with Eric recently. It was really controversial. It was really uh, confrontational, but it was fun, so I enjoyed that one a lot. Eric? Uh, Eric Hernandez. It was my last one right before this one. And I've also got some more return guests like Blake Junta, the philosopher, and Randall Rouser in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to present to them essentially my epistemology and say, here's why I believe evidence can't indicate a God to hear their thoughts on it. And I have Ozzy Asmondi as Randy's come on my show and we can talk about induction and philosophy. He's an atheist philosopher. He's going to be interesting to bring on. Has anyone challenged you uh, with the free will thing where you thought maybe you might be wrong? No, no one's, no. It's it's such a strong argument. Once you really try to analyze it and like make a premise conclusion format, there's no way out of it. It's, it's deductive. That was one of the big arguments I had with Eric uh, last week. And uh, you, don't, you have no reason to bring Aaron Raw on your show? Well, I, I would. I definitely debate with him on the philosophy because he disagrees with the philosophy, and I think philosophy is important. But I haven't really thought about it very much. Uh, what about um, Matt Dillahunty? Would he come on your show? Maybe, but I agree with Matt on so much. I'm not sure what I would talk with him about. Or maybe I could just present him my arguments and hear his thoughts on my arguments. That could work. Someone sent me a link of a video where he uh, finally talked about his relationship with his family and his mother in particular. Did you hear that? Yeah, he posted that recently, like uh, last week or two weeks ago. Yeah. What did you think about that? Pretty typical, I think. It's pretty much the same thing I've experienced. Oh, really? Yeah. But I, I, didn't, I didn't disown them. I'm just still used to it, of hearing the, we hope you come to God kind of a thing all the time. Hmm. All right. Well, very nice to talk to you. I should get going now, but thank you so much for having me back. It's always uh, it's always fun to talk to you. Sorry, I didn't have more uh, knowledge to uh, challenge you with. No, that's all right. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for coming on, and uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you, brother. See you. Talk to you soon. Bye.